0: This morning, as I often do on Sunday mornings, I sat down with my little bowl of cereal and my and my tea and my juice. The house is dark and very quiet, and and I turned on Fox News. And I had to turn it off after a couple of minutes, because they were uh, the little ticker on the bottom was just ticking off thing after thing after thing. I won't even mention just a Depressing, discouraging things in the world. And in the conversation that they were having, and actually it wasn't Fox, it was MSNBC because I flipped over there because Fox went to a commercial. And the conversation that they were having was about the value of swearing in the workplace and you heard this just last week this is a new thing the value of swearing in the workplace the caption was let the F-bomb fly and how 27% of Americans feel good about the whole concept of relaxing and just beating themselves by swearing in the workplace and I thought well that means 73% of Americans don't but they don't focus on that It's the 27% Who just wish they could let loose With some foul language and, and, and you know It's not about being all uptight It's about what what's good Does it really make you more yourself To be able to cuss I mean does that, does that help you feel like oh Now I'm really relaxed Now well, tell you what, I can preach this morning If I could just throw in a few expletives I can really relax and teach the word It's just so absolutely ridiculous to me And so I'm I'm watching this and I'm going, this is not what I need to be prepared to go and worship the Lord and to be in His Word and to be in fellowship. I don't need this. So I quickly switched it over to David Jeremiah. You know what he was talking about? He was talking about Jesus. And everything changed. I mean, the whole room seemed to change for me. I just, I want to talk about Jesus. In this world where things seem to be going from bad to worse and where we find ourselves in discouraging and distressing and difficult situations, I want to talk about Jesus. And I want to fix my eyes on Jesus. And truly, I've come to believe it's the only way. It's the only way Mike Chief could stand and say what he said to Les. It's the only way you walk through your wife being in such a state due to cancer, is you look at Jesus. It's the only way you handle family and life situations and trouble and trials and struggles which by the way we all have. You look at Jesus. You look at Jesus no matter how bad things may seem. And no matter how good things may seem as well. Because even in the greatest moments of your life looking at Jesus makes it better. And I want to talk about Jesus. Let's pray for a moment and we'll get into our study and and ask the Lord to bless and be with us. Lord Jesus, help us see you standing before us this morning in your glory. May we see and know more of the wonder of who you are. And Father, I know for some this morning, they've come just excited and happy and and things are good. And I pray just a, a blessing more joy upon joy in their lives. But father, I know as, as happens every week there are those who have come in with heavy hearts. Some father this morning whose hearts are heavier than, than even many people know. And I pray that they will see Jesus and find strength and even find a joy that may not be expressed in goofy smiles or silliness but a joy that is deep and real and eternal. A joy that exists in spite of external circumstances. Jesus you said more than once that you tell us the things you tell us you said the things you said so that our joy may be complete so we ask would would you Lord Jesus would you complete our joy this morning by showing us yourself help us to see you in Jesus name we pray and we worship and we reside this morning Amen 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 1. So just read along, I'm going to read the whole chapter. We're going to go through this whole story. It's a, a beloved story, very well-known story. Chapter 17, verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. And they were gathered at Sokah, which belongs to Judah. And they camped between Sokah and Azekah in Ephes Damim. Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in battle array to encounter the Philistines. The Philistines stood on the one mountain on one side while Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with the valley in between them. And then a champion came out from the armies of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath whose height was six cubits and a span which would be a minimum of nine feet two inches he had a bronze helmet on his head and he was clothed with scale armor which weighed 5,000 shekels of bronze he also had bronze greaves on his legs and a bronze javelin slung between his shoulders the shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam and the head of his spear, just the head of his spear weighed 600 shekels of iron that would be 15 pounds and his shield carrier also walked before him be a bummer of a job, wouldn't it? Be the shield carrier for Goliath. You know. And he stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, and he said to them, "Why do you come out and draw up in battle array? Am I not the Philistine? And you servants of Saul, choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will become your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall become our servants and serve us." Again, the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard the words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and were greatly afraid. Now David was the son of the Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah, whose name was Jesse. And he had eight sons, and Jesse was old in the days of Saul, advanced in years among men. The three older sons of Jesse had gone after Saul to battle. And the names of his three sons who went into the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and the second to him, Abinadab, and the third, Shama. David was the youngest. Now the three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's flock at Bethlehem. The Philistine came forward morning and evening for forty days and took his stand. Forty days of challenge, forty days of taunting... And Jesse said to David his son, Take now for your brothers an ephah of this roasted grain and these ten loaves, and run to the camp to your brothers. Bring also these ten cuts of cheese to the commander of their thousand, and look into the welfare of your brothers, and bring back news of them. For Saul and they and all the men of Israel are in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. So David arose early in the morning, and he left the flock with a keeper, and took the supplies, and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the circle of the camp while the army was going out in battle array, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines drew up in battle array, army against army. And David left his baggage in the care of the baggage keeper and ran to the battle line and entered in order to greet his brothers. As he was talking with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine from Gath named Goliath, was coming up from the army of the Philistines. And he spoke these same words and David heard them. All this tauntings and jeerings. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who's coming up? Surely he's coming up to defy Israel. And it will be that the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches, and will give him his daughter, and will make his father's house free in Israel. And David spoke to the men who were standing by him, saying, Well, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in accord with his word, saying, Thus it will be done for the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger burned against David, and he said, Why have you come down? And with who have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your insolence and the wickedness of your heart, for you have come down in order to see the battle." You just want to watch the Lord of the Rings That's all you want David and David said Verse 29 What have I done now? Which is a typical little brother thing to say Was it not just a question? Just asking And then he turned away from him to another And he said the same thing And the people answered the same thing as before And when the words which David spoke were heard They told them to Saul And he sent for him David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail on account of him. Your servant will go down and fight with this Philistine. (laughs) Well, Saul said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. You're but a youth. While he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant was tending his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came And took a lamb from the flock And I went out after him And attacked him And rescued it from his mouth And when he rose up against me I seized him by his beard And struck him and killed him Your servant has killed both the lion And the bear And this uncircumcised Philistine Will be like one of them Since he's taunting the armies of the living God And David said The Lord who delivered me From the paw of the lion And from the paw of the bear He will deliver me From the hand of this Philistine Saul said to David Go and may the Lord be with you and then Saul clothed David with his garments and put a bronze helmet on his head and he clothed them with armor David girded his sword over his armor and tried to walk for he had not tested them so David said to Saul I cannot go with these for I have not tested them and David took them off he took his stick In his hand, and chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook. And he put them in a shepherd's bag, which he had, even in his pouch, and his sling was in his hand. And he approached the Philistine. Then the Philistine came on and approached David, with the shield-bearer, in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a a youth, and ruddy, with a handsome appearance. Ruddy, red-haired. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine also said to David, Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the sky and to the beasts of the field. And then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. This day the Lord will deliver you up into my hands and I will strike you down and remove your head from you and I will give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord is not delivered by sword or by spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hands. And it happened. When the Philistine rose and came and drew near to meet David, that David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand into his bag and from it took a stone and slung it and it struck the Philistine on the forehead and the stone sank into his forehead so that he fell on his face to the ground. Thus David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and he struck the Philistine and killed him but there was no sword in David's hand. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of his sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. The men of Israel and Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines as far as the valley and to the gates of Ekron. And the slain Philistines lay along the way to Sha'arim, even to Gath and Ekron. The sons of Israel returned from chasing the Philistines and plundered their camps." Then David took the Philistine's head and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his weapons in his tent. Now when Saul saw David going out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this young man? And Abner said, by your life I do not know. the king said, you inquire whose son the youth is. So when David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the Philistine's head in his hand. David was just carrying this thing all over the place. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. That's one of the greatest stories in the Bible. It's often repeated It's one of the most beloved. It falls into the category of stories of whether you're a Christian or not, a believer in Jehovah God or not. You know the story of David and Goliath. That's even part of our national culture. People talk about David and Goliath moments. Oh man, he was just like David against that Goliath enemy of his. You know, that, that business was kind of like Goliath against the little David. You know, that, that phrase is used. People think about David and Goliath probably the same way as they think about Jack and the Beanstalk, which of course is a fairy tale. I think to remember as we read and study and consider this story is that it's not a fairy tale, that this is actual truth, it's history, it happened. And as we read through the Bible, I take it literally, I believe it means what it says, and it says what it means. And so when we read this story, there was a 9 foot, 2 inch, gargantuan guy named Goliath. He may have been taller, by the way. Some people may think he was up as far as 10, 11, 12 feet tall. Big guy. And a true story. David this young man had such bravado such courage and it wasn't empty courage either it was all in the Lord he believed God he trusted the Lord and when he went up to fight against Goliath he had no doubt but that the battle was in his hands it's a great story it's got to rank in the top ten stories I think in history if you say give some stories of history of fantastic things that have happened many people will come up with David and Goliath but how do you approach a story like this that we've all heard and known so well? I, mean, I venture to guess that most of you, as of reading through these 58 verses, probably didn't hear anything new. You've heard this before. You've heard the story. You know about the five smooth stones and the sling and Goliath and his taunting. You, you've heard it all. So what do we do with this story? Volumes have been written about it. In fact, you can go today to a Christian bookstore and pick up something about facing or killing the giants in your lives. And that's what we do. We take the story and we want to have application for us today. And I was thinking about this over the last couple of weeks. In fact, when we were flying down to California a week and a half ago, I had my Bible open. I was reading through this on the plane and, and thinking it through and going, you know, I've seen this. I've read this. I know the story. And I know the application. i preached that sermon before, facing giants. How do we, like David, face the giants in our lives? We approach this story, and sometimes a lot of biblical stories, with a certain set of familiar assumptions, because we've heard it before. And if we do that this morning, it's possible we may miss the deeper message. The real message, I believe, of the story of David Goliath. The real reason I think this story is in the Bible Now, even by saying that I know I run the risk, some people may say, I don't agree with Rick at all. I think the real implications are how to face our own giants, and I think he was just wrong, and that's okay. I can live with you being wrong. (laughs) But this story is not just about having a fresh approach. What we talk about this morning, and hear me on this, is not just trying to find a new spin for the old stories of Scripture. In fact, what we have intended and purposed to do from day one at the bridge is to read the Bible as it's intended to be read and to understand each and every story both in its historical context, its literal meaning, and also its purpose for being in Scripture. For the Lord tells fantastic and wonderful stories, but it's not just to tickle our ears. It's so that we may know Him better. So I pondered this and I prayed about it and I asked the question, how do I approach this vastly familiar subject, this so often applied subject, and what came to mind was ask the right question. Ask the right question. We tend to look at the story of David and Goliath from the perspective of what can I learn about David or from David about facing my giants. And we could spend quite a bit of time this morning talking about the giants in your lives. The struggles, the temptations, the heartaches, those big things that you're facing. How do, you, how do you fight those? We ask the question, how do I, like David, kill the giants before me? How do I face them with, with David-like courage? And that's not the right question. I believe the right question is not how can I be like David, but how is David like Jesus? That's the question to ask. It's the same question we've been asking since the very beginning of the bridge. Four years ago when we opened Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, the question is, where is Jesus in the story? Because the whole story is about Jesus. Psalm 40, verse 7, Hebrews 10, verse 7, Jesus says, Behold, I come, in the scroll of the book it's written of me, to do your will, O God. The whole of the book is all about Jesus. It all points to Jesus. And every story, every verse, every scripture should lead us in the direction of the person of Jesus Christ. If it doesn't, then we're not asking the right question. How is David like Jesus? Revelation chapter 5 verse 5 tells us, The lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome which is a powerful verse, the root of David. That is, Jesus precedes David. Just like the root precedes the plant, Jesus is the root of David. David comes from Jesus. Revelation 22.16 says, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star which blows my mind. He's not only the root of David, but he's also the descendant of David. Jesus says, I came before David. David came from me, and I came from David. make your mind just kind of pop a little bit wow Isaiah chapter 11 verse 10 speaking of the coming millennial kingdom says that in that day the nations will resort to the root of Jesse not even David now David's father the root of Jesse who will stand as a signal for the peoples and his resting place will be glorious so Jesus says I'm the root of Jesse the implications are obvious Jesse came from Jesus. David came from Jesus. You came from Jesus who is the author and perfecter not only of your faith but he is also the creator. Through him all things were created. And nothing has been created the Bible tells us that without him. All through Jesus. So he precedes everything. The nation of Israel in that time of the millennial kingdom will resort to the son of Jesse. The root of Jesse. In the same way that the nation of Israel resorted now to the son of Jesse, David, in our story before us, this epic story of David and Goliath, so one day all the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who is Jesus Christ. The story is about Jesus. And so the question is again, not how can we be like David, but how, can, how is David like Jesus? How do we see more of Jesus Christ in this life of David and in this particular story? So let's look at the story again this morning with this right question in mind. How is David like Jesus? I'm going to give you several things to jot down if you're a note taker just to to take note of. And you might want to even this week go back over chapter 17 and, and look for other clues and hints and pictures of Jesus because they're all over the place here. I'll give you just a handful. Back in chapter 16, verse 13, it tells us that Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed David in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. Number one. Number one in how David is like Jesus. Number one, he was sanctified by the Spirit. David's exploits, his life, his power, the power for killing the lion, killing the bear, and then killing Goliath, came because he was sanctified. By the Spirit of God. He was empowered for ministry and service as the King of Israel. And Jesus was too. You've heard the story in Matthew 3.16. says, after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened. And he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now, we've talked a lot this year in particular, about the Holy Spirit. So we got into Joshua several months ago. I think it was around this time last year. And we began looking at the story of Joshua and the people of Israel. We saw this this type of them crossing the Jordan River and that picture of, of the baptism of the Holy Spirit and how the Spirit empowers us to live lives of ministry and lives of service before Him. And we talked about the difference between the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which the Bible tells us is available to all who believe. Specifically, Peter ties it to baptism. He says, Repent me, baptized, every one of you, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Not the gifts, plural, but the gift, the, the presence, the person. Indwelling in your life. Acts 2.38, you can look that up. But Peter says, that's, that's a, a good anchor point for you. And if you haven't, by the way, been baptized... It doesn't necessarily mean that you haven't received the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, but you should do it anyway. I say it doesn't necessarily mean that because you go throughout the book of Acts and baptism isn't always before the giving of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes the Spirit comes before baptism. So it's not an exact science. God says, I'm going to do it my way, however I decide to do it when I decide to do it. That's up to me, not you, don't worry about it. But we do know that we receive the indwelling, the promised Holy Spirit. He says, I'm going to come and abide with you. And if you are a Christian today and you have given your life to Jesus Christ, you have the gift of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling Spirit of God. But there's also the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, there's also the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which all believers can receive, but not all believers have received. These power gifts described in several places in the New Testament, Romans chapter 12, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, if you want to jot those down, Ephesians chapter 4, and even 1 Peter chapter 4, where the gifts of the Spirit are talked about, those gifts given for the purpose of ministry and service and witnessing, it's the difference of the Holy Spirit being in you and the power of the Spirit coming upon you. And I didn't understand that before. I'll tell you what brought me to that conclusion and that understanding. It wasn't an ecstatic experience. It was the study of Scripture. The Bible is very clear. The distinction is very obvious. But think about Jesus. For David was sanctified by the Spirit. Jesus was sanctified and empowered for ministry when the Holy Spirit came upon him at his baptism. That was when the power to do the miracles happened, was at his baptism. Well, Wait, wait, you're saying that Jesus didn't have the power to do miracles before that? No, he didn't. I'll show you why in just a second. But the question I want to ask is, when did Jesus receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit? If he got the power of the Spirit, the Spirit come upon him in his baptism, what was the point in time when Jesus was indwelt by the Holy Spirit? I'll let you know it was a trick question. Because Jesus always had the indwelling of the Spirit. Because Jesus is, the, the Holy Spirit is His Spirit. He can't be filled with who He is. He already is. The Spirit of God in flesh. Matthew chapter 1 verse 20 says, When Joseph had considered this, this dream, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary in your, as your wife, for the child who has been conceived of her is of the Holy Spirit. You see, Jesus born into this world was the Holy Spirit in flesh in, as some people have called it, an earth suit. The Holy Spirit in human flesh. He didn't need to be indwelt by the Spirit because He is the Spirit of God. He was born the Spirit of God in human flesh. Luke 1.35 The angel said to Mary The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you and for that reason the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. Which is why Paul can rightly say in Philippians 1.9 I know that these things will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Now I just point this out again because I want us to be clear and understand who the Holy Spirit is. Not what the Holy Spirit is. Because the Holy Spirit is not some vague power or force. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus Christ, as Paul refers to Him. Peter wrote in 1 Peter 1.11 that the prophets of old were seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating, as he predicted, the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. So when you read the phrase Holy Spirit in the Scripture, it's the Spirit of God. It's God's Spirit. It's the Spirit of Jesus. It's Jesus' Spirit. It's Him. And so while the Holy Spirit comes upon Jesus for power and ministry at His baptism, He already was the Holy Spirit walking in human flesh from the moment of His conception all the way up. kind of solves the question, doesn't it, that people ask, When did Jesus really know that He was God? when did that really happen you know there's a whole last temptation of Christ in that movie that came out years ago that said he didn't figure it out until later on when he kind of went oh (laughs) I am the Messiah he always knew are you saying he knew in the cradle I think so could he verbalize it could he explain it no because he had emptied himself at that point that's one of the amazing verses in scripture again we'll, we'll get there in just a minute how Jesus emptied himself And so David was sanctified by the Spirit of God. So Jesus, same thing, sanctified by the Spirit. Now why would Jesus be sanctified by the Spirit? That's kind of silly. If He is the Holy Spirit, why would He need the Holy Spirit? Because remember, as much as Jesus existed to show us God, Jesus also existed to show us how we were to live as human beings. He's the perfect picture of God. He's also the perfect picture of the perfect man. How do I live filled with the Spirit in my life? Look at Jesus. He gives us that example. He shows us in His life. First Samuel chapter 17, verse 12. Interesting, it says, David was the son of the Ephratite of Bethlehem in Judah, whose name was Jesse, and he had eight sons. David was the eighth son of eight sons. And we talked about this Wednesday night. Eight in the Bible is the number of new beginnings. God's doing a new thing. With the rise of David to the throne, a brand new thing is going to happen for Israel, and that is a kingdom is born that is not limited to this earth. A kingdom is born that would be an eternal kingdom. Jesus Christ himself will one day sit on the throne of David, even in Jerusalem. And God will fulfill and keep that promise. So David, the eighth son of eight sons, was sanctified for God's purposes just like Jesus at the beginning, by the way, of his public ministry. At the beginning of his ministry, David was sanctified. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he was sanctified by the Spirit. Verse 13 and 14 of chapter 17. Going on since the three older sons of Jesse had gone after Saul into battle. Their names were Eliab and Abinadab and Shammah. Verse 14, David was the youngest... Now the three oldest followed Saul. But David, verse 15, went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's flock at Bethlehem. Number two in your notes, not only was David like Jesus sanctified by the Spirit, David like Jesus was a shepherd out of Bethlehem. And I just love that picture. Especially as we get closer to Christmas and we think of one of my favorite old Christmas carols, the little town of Bethlehem. It was the birthplace of Jesus Christ. It was the birthplace of David. First king and the last king of Israel Both born in the same place Both shepherds out of Bethlehem Wait a minute Rick I thought Jesus was a carpenter Okay I'll give you that He did have that vocation That occupation Before he began his public ministry Jesus was a carpenter by trade But Jesus was always a shepherd by heart He said in John 10.11 I am the good shepherd He said the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep And the prophet Micah, in chapter 5, verse 2, said, As for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. And, verse 4, he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. Just as the first king, David, was shepherd over Israel. So Jesus is the shepherd of his flock. And we are the people of his pasture game. First Samuel 17 verse 17 says then Jesse said to David his son take now for your brothers an ephah of this roasted grain and these ten loaves and run to the camp to your brothers. So Jesus sanctified by the Spirit shepherd out of Bethlehem David and Jesus both were sent by their father to bring bread to their brothers. He was sent by His Father to bring bread to His brothers. Isn't that exactly what Jesus did? Why He came? John chapter 6, verse 57. As the living Father sent Me, I live because of the Father. So he who eats Me will also live because of Me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the Father's ate and died, but he who eats this bread will live forever. Remember we sang this morning, I come down from the Father, Jesus said. Time for me to go back up. I was sent by the Father. David was sent by his father in this story to bring bread to his brothers. It's a picture of Jesus. Number four, Jesus also came seeking a treasure. And so did David. There's some language in here, and it's interesting. They kind of go back and forth. David keeps having this conversation two or three times. He has the conversation in verse 25. The men of Israel say, Have you seen this man who's coming up? Surely he is, co- he who is coming, he's coming up to defy Israel. And it will be that the king will enrich the man who gives him, who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And the next few verses is David going back and asking them to clarify this. Well, you're saying there's some treasure in, involved in this thing. You're saying whoever kills Goliath... He, he asks again, so what happens? So if someone kills Goliath, the king's going to give him riches riches, and, and, and his daughter and, and his father's house is going to be free? Yeah, that's what we're saying. These guys were saying over here that if, if someone kills Goliath, their riches and daughter and, and father's house will be free. Is, is that true? Why is David clarifying this? Because he's seeking something here, gang. He's realizing there's some reward to be had here oh see, that totally messes up uh, David's motives I thought his motives were just about going and, and you know glorifying God yeah they were but there was treasure involved too there was something in it and he saw that and so did Jesus three things were offered to the man who would kill Goliath an inheritance of riches you kill Goliath you're going to get an inheritance Jesus came seeking that inheritance It's part of what he was doing. Isaiah 53 verse 11 says, As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, God says, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the treasure with the strong, because he poured himself out to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. I'm going to give him an inheritance that is huge. The inheritance, Philippians chapter 2 tells us, is I will lift his name up that his name will be above all names. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. He's got the inheritance. He earned it in that fight, in that great battle against his enemy, just as David did, an inheritance of riches. But he's also promised a daughter, the daughter of the king. You beat Goliath, you get the daughter as a bride. And Jesus came for his bride. Indeed, later, David would receive Saul's daughter, Michael, as a bride. Although Saul's attitude and reason for that is, is spurious at best. We'll see that in coming chapters. But Jesus' victory on the cross of Calvary gains; it secures his bride for him. It's part of the treasure Jesus came seeking, His bride. Ephesians chapter 5.31 says, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. I read this verse at the wedding I did last week. It's the whole one flesh thing, husband and wife thing. But you know what? That chapter has nothing to do with husbands and wives. Well, you can pull out some application about how husbands are to treat wives and wives their husbands. But Paul says at the end of the chapter in verse 32, this mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. You see what Paul does there? He's asking the right question. The marriage thing? Well, sure, it's about marriage, but it's also about Jesus. You're asking the right question. What does marriage say about Jesus? It's Jesus in the church. He came looking for His bride. And Revelation 19.7 says, Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to Him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. Do you realize what this means? You're His treasure. The treasure Jesus came seeking in this world is you it's me now I've said it before it's a little difficult for us men us guys to get our, our, our minds around this idea of being the bride not easy to think of myself but I, like, I can do groom okay I can think that that way but for me to be the bride I just can't even imagine picking out the dress you know <laughs> shopping for the flowers and all that stuff but the truth is we are Christ's treasure and if you have even ever momentarily questioned your worth or value if you ever looked in the mirror and kind of wondered about yourself do you ever have one of those dark moments where you think, man, I've done so many things wrong and I've got, I've got so much bad in my life, and I'm such a mess? I don't see how I possibly can be of any value to the Lord. Listen, you are called the bride of Christ. Put that in your veil and wear it, okay? You are his treasure. David got this. These riches. He, he, he got the bride. Jesus, same thing And Jesus also says David would would The the, the victor would make His father's house Free in Israel And this amazes me It's freedom for the father's household David investing Goliath Was assured freedom For the household of Jesse his father That they wouldn't be enslaved That there's his brothers Who had to go fight They were conscripted to fight They were drafted Now your father's house will be free just as Jesus promises freedom for his household as well. What household? Israel. The household of Jesus. Isaiah 11 verse 10 says, In that day the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples and his resting place will be glorious. Then it will happen on that day that the Lord will again recover the second time with his hand the remnant of his people. Israel. The victory of Jesus, like the victory of David, secures freedom for his household, freedom for Israel. Which is why the angel said to Joseph in Matthew one twenty one, you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. I read something interesting, I have to come back to this in a future study sometime, I was reading it over this weekend, about the Sermon on the Mount and the fact that the Sermon on the Mount was not spoken to Christians wait a minute that, those three chapters are like our banner aren't they you know we're the city on the hill right Jesus was speaking to Jews Jesus was giving the Sermon on the Mount as a call to Israel now there's great application for you and for me as Christians that we can draw out of it but the substance of the Sermon on the Mount is a it's a Jewish sermon sometime we'll come back and look at that I don't have time this morning but David, like Jesus, was sanctified by the Spirit. He was a shepherd out of Bethlehem. He was sent by his father to bring bread to his brothers. He came seeking a treasure, that inheritance, the bride, freedom. But there's more. For David, like Jesus, was, number five, I think, in your notes, if you're keeping track, number five, scorned by his brothers. Look at verse 28. Eliab, his older brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger burned against David, and he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your insolence and the wickedness of your heart, for you have come down in order to see the battle. But David said, What am I talking now? I hear that in my house all the time. Often from Hayden, sometimes from Hannah. What did I do? Well, what are you talking about? I was just asking a question. David says, he was scorned by his brothers for showing up by showing any bravado at all you punky little kid go home this is real stuff this is man's work go tend your sheep go back to the hills of Bethlehem the rural area and hang out there this is battle time this is fighting time what are you doing this is ridiculous and they scorned him John 1.11 says Jesus came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him Indeed, his own family did not believe him. Mark chapter 3 verse 20 says, Jesus came home and a crowd gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. This is how radical Jesus coming on the scene was. It was blowing people's minds and they were coming from everywhere and pressing in to see him and to touch him and to hear him. And he couldn't even eat. And it says in verse 21 of Mark chapter 3, When his own people, that is his family, heard of this, they went out to take custody of him for they were saying he's lost his senses. His family, Mary. And his brothers, James and Jude. and They thought he was nuts. He's got this tremendous following. This is just Jesus. Go back to the hills of Bethlehem, Jesus. Tend the sheep. What are you doing on the battle? It's ridiculous. And John chapter 7 verse 5 says, Not even his brothers were believing in him. And you know what's interesting to me? We have two letters written by brothers of Jesus in the New Testament. The book of James. It's not written by James the Apostle. It was written by James the brother of Jesus. And the book of Jude. Written by Jude the brother of Jesus. But they will not claim their place as his brothers in their books. Both of them refer to themselves, James chapter 1 verse 1 and Jude chapter 1 verse 1, as bond servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. They didn't believe him when he was walking in the flesh. But after the resurrection, they believed. They so believed that they considered themselves bondservants of their brother. And they wouldn't even claim that relationship of brother. The scorn was transformed into servitude. And later David's brothers would serve under his rule. Later Jesus' brothers would serve under his rule as well. Scorned by his brothers. Number six. Number six. Strengthened by experience look at what happens with David verse 34 he tells Saul all about how he was tending his father's sheep and a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock and he went out after him and attacked him and rescued it from his mouth when he rose up against it I seized him by his beard which I think is really cool can you, can you get that picture in your mind this is how close David is to the mouth of the lion he grabs the mane and kills it I mean face to face with the hot stinky breath of the lion you know. I mean he's right there and same thing with the bear I grabbed his beard I know bears have beards. I don't know grab grabbed his ear or what but kills him David was prepared for the battle with Goliath long before it happened he wasn't an inexperienced ruddy little youth ruddy yes youth yes not inexperienced he had been strengthened and prepared for this fight ahead of time he explains all this to Saul. This is partly where David's courage come, came from. God had given David opportunity to learn courage. Now do you think when he first saw the lion dragging off the lamb that David jumped up and went, Ho-ho! Kill the lion! I don't think so. Probably like you or me, freaking out, but he's got to do something. He's got to save the little lamb and rushes out and the fight happens the next thing you know covered with blood and, 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 the, and the lamb skips off. And What happened? Wow! And then when the bear came... A little bit stronger, just a little, because he fought the lion. I can, I can do this. I can fight this bear. Now when he sees this big idiot named Goliath standing there, piece of cake. I can take him. I've taken wild animals before. He was strengthened by his experience. He had experienced God in the most powerful of ways, and so Jesus' own ministry did not happen until he had been strengthened by experience. this is some of the wild radical stuff about Jesus he said wait a minute Okay, he was indwelled by the Holy Spirit from the moment of conception on and I I can see when he turned 30 years old before he started his ministry he was baptized so the power of the Spirit came on him so that we can understand that we can have the power of the Spirit both in us and on us I I get that But, but you're saying Jesus was strengthened wasn't he always God how is it that he became stronger then Matthew chapter 4 verses 1 through 11 Mark chapter 1 verses 12 through 13 and Luke chapter 4 verses 1 through 13 you can read about the temptations of Jesus in the wilderness. For immediately upon receiving the baptism of the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit himself the Holy Spirit in Jesus sent him to the wilderness where Jesus spent 40 days in battle fighting hand to hand combat with Satan. Swinging the sword of the word as he quoted from Deuteronomy three times. And finally, best Satan. Satan leaves for another opportune time. But Jesus was strengthened in his experience. Empowered for ministry. And David faced Goliath much the same way Jesus faced his foe. Hold this thought a little more, a little bit longer. Jesus, okay, how is he... If he was God, but then he had to be strengthened. I don't get that. Listen... 1 Samuel 17, verse 38. Slip over to there. It tells us that Saul clothed David with his garments and put a bronze helmet on his head, and he clothed him with armor. And David girded his sword over his armor and tried to walk, for he had not tested them. So David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. And David took them off. Number 7 in your notes, David, like Jesus, was stripped of kingly glory. See, Saul says, Wear my armor. Wear the armor of a king. My glory, at least you'll look like you got something going on. David says, No, I won't go into this battle wearing the armor of glory. Same thing with Jesus. He did not enter the battle wearing any glory whatsoever. Philippians 2.7 It's one of the most powerful verses in all Scripture. Jesus, when He became a man, it tells us He emptied Himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Stripped of all kingly glory. Stripped of power. Emptied Himself. It's that Greek word. Know this word, kanuo, which means to be completely emptied out. To be made void of anything that is power. Jesus emptied Himself which is how I can say he's born indwelling he he had the spirit but he did not have the power because when he left heaven to become an infant he said I'm emptying myself of glory I'm setting aside my, my robes of power and authority and so the miracles that Jesus did when he walked the earth were not because he was God the miracles he did were because he had the Holy Spirit upon him which is how Jesus can say to you and to me greater things than these you will do because the same spirit that rested upon Jesus the power that was given him for ministry same spirit is available to you same spirit is available to me Jesus emptied himself so he wasn't God no he was God but he was God without glory he was God without power he was God setting aside all the former things stripped of his kingly glory by the way The name Goliath means stripped. Stripped. To uncover, to strip, or literally to be exiled. You could almost look at the life of Jesus as a life of exile as he leaves the throne room of heaven, the glory, the wonder, the splendor of eternity, and he's exiled for 33 years on this puny little planet without power, without those those robes of righteousness. It was just Jesus. Absolute vulnerability No robes, no grandeur, no majesty. But he had the power of the Spirit, didn't he? Which is available to you and available to me. I tell you this to remind you that when Jesus faced Satan, both during the temptation and throughout his life, he fought Satan on human soil, in human skin. Yet he knew ahead of time what the outcome would be. He knew he'd win. Same as David. Number eight, David was secure in faith. Secure in faith. Just like Jesus, verse 45, David says to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin. I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. By the way, side note, I just got to say this. Hannah sent me a little uh, YouTube video of a song, a really cool song done by this band, and and someone had made a video, It it was kind of a Christian thing, it was awesome. I was reading down. Did you get my email back on that, by the way? Mm -hmm. Okay. Cool. I I was reading down. I was looking at some of the responses because on YouTube you can watch the video and then you can respond to it. I'm reading and looking at them. And I get down and and on one, is is it what I thought it was? Mm -hmm. Okay. OMG. Now I'm, I'm starting to learn that the teenagers today. Speak in in you know <laughs> acronyms, acronyms and, and teen speak I mean they you know and, and they use this little uh, LOL lol laugh out loud didn't know that <laughs> so in the middle of a sermon if I want to laugh out loud I'll just say LOL and I can just go on you know <laughs> this is how they talk now so I saw the little three letter phrase OMG and I went oh my and the, the thought hit me is that okay. Is that okay to abbreviate blasphemy? <laughs> you know, and I, I I will grant you that sometimes I overthink things. But is abbreviating blasphemy any different than blasphemy itself? Is saying OMG any different than saying, oh my god? It's interesting to me that David says, I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. I come to you in the name of God. Whereas we live in a a world where people come to us in the name of God all the time, but there's no power. Because it's blasphemy. Because it's taking that powerful, wonderful name and reducing it to a catchphrase. Well, David didn't think of it as a catchphrase. He didn't see Goliath and go, OMG! He said, I come to you in the name of God, and I come to fight, and I'm going to take you apart, dude. I'm going to cut off your head, which cracks me up because he had a slingshot and five stones. How are you going to cut off his head? With one of those smooth stones? I mean, that's going to take a lot of sawing. <laughs> But he knew, he knew, and the power of God was with David. And does that not sound like the heart of Jesus, who on betrayal night, said in John 16, 33, These things I have spoken unto you, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Jesus, I read the story that night they, they they crucified you they took you out and beat you and the next morning they hung you on the cross I know you didn't overcome not yet but Jesus was speaking with such authority and such assurance yeah you can take peace my brothers Thursday night you can take peace relax it's okay I've already overcome the battle hadn't begun but he had already overcome Jesus was so secure in that faith David was secure in that faith and again when you're facing those tough times and when those giant problems do come up don't consider how you can overcome them don't think about how you can face them how like David if I do this, this, this or this I can face my giants no, you consider how Jesus faced his giant and won for you How He is the victor. How you stand with the victorious Jesus Christ and you don't have to worry about how to face my giants. You just call on the name of Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Jesus has overcome the world listen once again now to the rest of the story as we finish up verse 48 then it happened when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David that David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine he didn't hang back going hey, how am I going to do that he just took off running Woohoo! time to conquer and off he goes David put his hand into his bag took out from it a stone he's on the run he's grabbing a stone he puts it in the sling he slings it and struck the Philistine on his forehead and the stone I love this sank into his forehead it was graphic this would play really well on the big screen and so he fell on his face to the ground and David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, and he struck the Philistine and killed him, but there was no sword in David's hand. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took out his sword and drew it out of its sheath, and killed him a second time, killed him, and cut off his head with it. And the Philistines saw that their champion was dead. And they fled. Down in verse 54, David took the Philistine's head and brought it into Jerusalem. But he put his weapons in his tent. Verse 57, David returned and says he came to Saul with the Philistine's head in his hand. I mean, he's carrying this thing like a trick-or-treat basket. I mean, he's walking around with this thing. You know, the head of this monster Goliath. Swinging him by the hair. He's got him right there. just cracks me up. And I want you to think about this. Goliath's sword was not a little thing. Goliath's sword it's probably by the way the same weapon referred to as a spear back in verse 7 was 600 shekels of iron 15 pounds just the head just the tip and David gets a hold of that thing and whack chops off the monster's head and David said he was going to do it and it's something he could not have done with a sling and five stones he knew ahead of time he knew ahead of time listen he knew ahead of time he would use Goliath's sword against him just like Jesus if you're taking notes number 9 the sword of the enemy was the weapon of choice the sword of the enemy was the weapon of choice used against the enemy as David would come to Goliath Goliath came with a sword thinking I'm going to chop off his head and David took the same sword, that implement of the enemy, and he killed him with it, which is what Jesus did. Satan said, I'm coming at Jesus with a cross. And I'm going to chop off his head. I'm taking him out. with This is my weapon, a Roman cross. What a great, brutal weapon. That's the one I'm going to use. And he brings the weapon to kill Jesus. And it became Jesus' weapon of choice to save his people. It's always how it works, by the way. What Satan means for harm, God can use for fantastic things. Jesus said in John 3.14, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in Him will have eternal life. Colossians chapter 2, I love this, verse 13, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. How did you do that, Jesus? Having canceled out the certificate of death consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, he has taken it out of the way having nailed it to the cross and listen to verse 15 when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities he made a public display of them having triumphed over them through him David wandering around with the head of Goliath public display of the humiliation not only of Goliath the enemy but of all the Philistines look at what we got here now think about this the cross cut off the head of our enemy. And in so doing, Jesus, and we should take great courage and joy in this, and faith in this, Jesus made a public display of Satan, our enemy, through the cross. Using the very weapon the enemy meant for harm against Jesus, he used to make a public display of the foolishness, the ridiculousness of Satan. And it takes us back to one of the very earliest prophecies that we even have on record, Genesis 3.15, that says what? He shall bruise your head. The cross bruises the head of the enemy. By the way, that word bruise in the Hebrew is shuf. And it literally means to break or snap off. He's going to break your head, Satan. I really like that. I take great comfort in that. How is David like Jesus? That's the right question. How is David a picture of Jesus? How do we see Jesus, understand Him more? What courage can we take from knowing that Jesus has gone into the battle? But listen, there's one last question I've got to ask before we go this morning. We've asked, how is David like Jesus? Our question then is, how do we respond to Jesus, who's the root and offspring of David? How do we respond to him? You see, our, our theological problem here, that I think we get into with the story of David and Goliath, and trying to think, okay, how can I kill my giants like David did, is we're comparing ourselves to David. And David's the wrong character for us to compare ourselves to in the story. We are not like David. No, David is like Jesus well then so who are we in this story I think we're far more aligned with a different character a man by the name of Jonathan look at his response in chapter 18 verse 1 it came about when he had finished speaking to Saul that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David and Jonathan loved him as himself Saul took him that day and did not let him return to his father's house so Saul's not keeping his word by the way Saul promised, you promised know, freedom and riches and a daughter and he's not keeping his word to any of it right now. But it says in verse 3 that Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor including his sword and his bow and his belt. He gives that all over to David. That is the picture of you, the picture of me in this story. We are Jonathan. As much as David is the picture of Jesus, so we are a picture of Jonathan. Everything here that represented Jonathan's strength, his place of honor as son of the king, his security, his standing, all of these things, Jonathan stripped them off and gave them to David. How do we respond to Jesus? We strip ourselves. Our strength, our security, our standing, our self-assurance, we give it to him. That's our response. Our response to the story. Our response to the Savior. Our response to the victor, Jesus Christ. We sang it a few minutes ago. Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed me white as snow. Let's pray together. Oh, Jesus, I pray that you'll give me a heart like Jonathan. For this morning even as we close out of this time of study Lord I want my heart to be knit to yours I want to learn to love you Even as I love myself More than I love myself More than I love any other thing or person in this world It's a hard thing to pray But Jesus I pray that you strip us down So that everything we have is yours and is in your hands That we don't arrogantly presume that we like David are going to go into the battle but that, that you go before us. And we knit ourselves to you heart to heart, spirit to spirit to walk under your covering and your protection and your glory and grandeur and greatness that you literally earned Lord Jesus on the cross. Would you knit ourselves closer to you? Father I pray if there's anyone this morning Whether it's in this service or the next service Who have not truly given their hearts To you Jesus There would be such conviction today That that would happen And if that's you this morning And you want to be tied to Jesus Maybe in a way you never have before I invite you to join me in prayer And just ask Him Just pray in your heart to the Lord Lord Jesus I'm a sinner And I need your forgiveness And I confess it to you And I believe that you are the Christ, the anointed one, the Son of the living God. And I believe that you went to the cross and you died in my place. But that you turned that weapon around and you resurrected three days later. And I ask you now to be my Lord and be my Savior. Enter into my heart and my life. Lord Jesus I would add this in this fellowship there continue to be battles and we continue to wonder how we can possibly face these huge looming giants giants of cancer giants of family distress giants of financial struggles and difficulties perhaps Father we need to understand we don't have the power to face these giants but Jesus does and has so I ask you to increase our faith in our Lord Jesus Christ and it's by His name we pray. Amen.